You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, ChristianHumanist.org. I got nothing going on. You got nothing going on. I need something to do. We need something to do. You should know by now that man in the Bugatti, he's a member of the Thanks for downloading another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast, your source for art, culture, politics, and religion. Serious conversation that tries not to take itself too seriously. If you like what you hear, go to iTunes and leave a nice review. You can also like our Facebook page for more content and conversation. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hey everybody, Danny Anderson here again, welcoming you, welcoming you back to part two of my discussion with Jordan Poss and Jay Eldred about monuments and memorials in American culture uh, and world culture, as it turns out. And I wanted to let you know that if you haven't listened to that one, you probably want to start with that. We will be picking up right where we left off for this episode. And as promised, I'm trying to thank people who like the Facebook page, so let me add a few more to that list. Elizabeth Mansley, Danielle Nielsen, Rob Osborne, Melissa Skiles Rosa, Neil Gusman, Abdahamid Hussein Moose, and Alex Poulos. Thanks again for uh, joining us on the Facebook page. It's a lot of fun there. If you have any comments about the show, feel free to tell us about them right there. Also, feel free to go to iTunes and give us that uh, five-star rating, which helps more people find us. Now, enjoy the rest of the show. specific place I see uh, this stuff happening. A, a big front in the cultural debate that we're talking about is the phenomenon of protesting buildings. We've kind of alluded mm-hmm. to this a bit um, that are named after, frankly, nasty people. Okay, I remember a specific instance of this at Clemson that I think you guys uh, probably have something to say about that. But there's also things going on at Yale, I believe, uh, and, and other places. Um what are what are what's going on there? What are some what are some others and and what are what's what's the debate? Well, at least as far as personal experience goes, Jordan and I both went to the same small fundamentalist college, um, which I know that he mentioned it before, but I'll mention it again. It it did strange things for me because when today if you hear the word fundamentalist so generally the idea is well they're you know small-minded closed-minded they don't want to listen to other things but for me it actually opened my eyes to a host of other ideas and made me feel i don't know it just made me a better person i think in accepting other people's ideas that weren't my own Hmm. anyway that's just my my experience anyway this this school has a history of racial problems shall we say I won't say the name of the university, but you can probably figure it out if anyone wants to go and, you know, do five seconds of research. Your homework audience, yes. Um. Yes, figure out where we went (laughs) went to undergrad. Anyway, but on on campus, there used to be a dorm named after Bib Graves, former governor of Alabama and member of the KKK. In fact, I think he rose up high in the ranks of the KKK. 
Yeah, but, he was a he was a dragon or a wizard or something. Yeah, I didn't I didn't write down his his title, but from what I could find, he he used the clan to further his own career because it was the politically expedient thing to do. Mm. It doesn't really it doesn't change the fact that he was a member of the clan, that he was a leader, and for years there was a movement to get this university to rename the dorm, and then sometime in 2011 it just showed up with a new name with no. Like, Oof. no press release, no explanation. No fanfare at all. That's interesting. No, it's like one day they took the name down and put up a new one. And I'm not sure what they changed it to. Uh, uh, I think it's I think it's now Ironside. Okay. That's interesting. Uh, that reminds me so much of, you know, being from Cleveland. I, I am not a Wahoo supporter, uh, Chief Wahoo supporter. I, th- I do think it's demonstrably racist symbol. Um, and I think the team realizes that there's a um, – a political backlash to keeping it or changing it. And so I think their solution has been rather brilliant in a, you know, crass way is just to kind of gradually stop using it uh, without talking mm-hmm. about it. <laughs> and so you don't really see Wahoo as part of the official uh, branding of the team anymore. Now it's that sort of um, C that they use. And so um, I think that that's what you're describing here is a really interesting way to go about it. Just sort of, change it without making a deal about changing it. And so, yeah, go ahead. I interrupted though. Go ahead. No, that's actually all that I had on that. Okay. Segment. Okay. Um, what about Clemson? Uh, what, what was going on there? There was, uh, uh some famous racist. Did you yeah. Well, well, I mean, uh, you know, a, a problem with this that, you know, people will often point out only to get cussed at is that you know basically you look anywhere past about 40 years ago and basically everybody qualifies as a racist by our standards yeah. <laughs> um so there, there's that well this uh came down after i was at clemson uh, i graduated in 2010 which kind of blows my mind um <laughs> time flies really. but uh this 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 was a part of the campus culture when i was there and and me and the other grad students would kind of joke about it um the most iconic building, probably, unless you're, you know, a football fan and know Death Valley, uh, the most iconic building on campus is Tillman Hall. Uh, it's one of the original buildings built on campus. Uh, was the campus was originally one of the upstate plantations of John C. Calhoun, who I kind of want to talk about later. Um, but his uh, Calhoun left the estate to his daughter and his son-in-law, who willed it to become a uh, land grant uh, college and agricultural school school for the frankly dirt poor people of the upstate to get some kind of education Mm. uh one of the advocates of the school in its earliest iteration as a very very small boys only military school that was you know basically there to teach agricultural science uh was a guy named ben tillman who was very active in south carolina politics uh i believe he kind of got his rise in reconstruction I, i should have gone back and brushed up on him but i didn't have time um Ben Tillman was – we used to joke about him because he was a very tough, colorful character. He had one eye. I think he had lost one of his eyes in a fight, mm-hmm. uh, and which tells you a little bit about his, his personality. He was very t- pugnacious and tenacious um, and went to bat for Clemson College at a time when uh, basically there was very little state funding to go around. Uh, the South is essentially a third-world country until the 1950s. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a little, very little state funding for schools to go around, and there's this very new, very small college in the upstate that was kind of draining funds away from the glorious project of the University of South Carolina. 
<laughs> so some of the people at the old, more aristocratic institution of USC wanted to see Clemson College shut down. Um, I'm probably oversimplifying here, but you know we've only got so much time in the day. <laughs> uh, ben Tillman went to bat for the college and really, really worked hard to make sure that Clemson stayed open, uh, in honor of which there is this building named after him, right? Um, the complicating factor and what – you know, so this is why there's a building named after him on campus, right? And, and I, th- I think one of the things we need to look at really seriously when we look at the names of buildings is – why is that person honored with a building? Right. Um, and and uh, what aspect of their career are we commemorating? Mm. Uh, for Ben Tillman, that is his early advocacy of Clemson and helping keep the thing open when it was struggling. Right. And you know, so very you know, very truly, I as a graduate of the modern institution of Clemson University owe, however tenuous a debt to Ben Tillman for keeping the school open. Uh, ben Tillman was also known as Pitchfork Ben um, <laughs> because of the instrument of choice he talked about using to keep um, African-Americans in line. Oh, wow. uh, sim- similar to Georgia Governor Lester Maddox talking about running them off with an axe handle in the 20th century. Um, yeah, Pitchfork Ben Tillman was unabashedly racist. I mean, there, there, there was this was an era in which basically everybody qualified, but he was the kind of guy who made the the more polite people blush, right, with his kind of rhetoric, yeah. uh, particularly in regard to the place of African Americans in political life. Uh, this is what has gotten attention recently, right, which has sort of led to this controversy. Okay, Ben Tillman was, by our standards of racial equity and social justice, a pretty ugly character, but there is a very legitimate reason that his name is on this building. These two things have to exist in tension, and which one of them is going to balance out the other? Um, you know that that, and this is on this is on a campus in which John C. Calhoun's house is sitting about a hundred yards away, right? Right. Um, it's a very very complicated and vexatious issue. Uh, I believe they are they have voted to maintain the name of Tillman Hall, which. Me personally, I think is the right choice because of what it's supposed to mean in the context of the college. Right. Um, but that that cannot be without understanding the complicating factors of who Ben, uh, ben Tillman was. Um, in the show notes, uh, this is the point at which I had you know was going to bring up Cecil Rhodes, right, and his role in the very acquisitive British imperialism of the Victorian era. Sure. Um, I mean, there again, you have a guy who has endowed a a program that has. You know, enabled the study of now multiple generations of scholars, but who himself was part of, um, for lack of a better word, you know, structures which we would nowadays recoil at. Um, yeah, I so this is so uh, this is I'm going to transition to the next question from here because I think there's a real natural break. Um, yeah, definitely. And I'll send it off. I'll, I'll have Jay answer the next question first, and then uh, and we'll, I'm just trying to switch it back and forth here, um, but. <laughs> At what point – so what responsibility do institutions have in purifying their institutional brand? Um, and what responsibility do those of us who inhabit those institutions have in uh, dealing with the complicated nature of these things? And, and so the students – I know there were not – I don't have any idea the numbers were, or that are involved here, how many people were petitioning to change the name of Tillman Hall. But uh, they're coming from a position where this person is um, 
utterly indefensible to be honored uh, in any way on, on campus. And so I guess I'm getting to the question of who's writer and who's wronger here. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> certainly no one worth listening to in Pennsylvania would stand for a Jerry Sandusky statue at Penn State, right? Uh, although there's still comp- or, you know, conflict about the Joe Paterno statue. Right. People fighting about football is stupid to me anyway. But, um, um, but uh, some people argue that we should leave Tillman's name on certain buildings. What's the difference, I guess? Uh I'd like to talk about how we can rationally decide what stays and what goes, and if things stay, what are we supposed to do with it? I mean, does, should the institution provide some sort of disclaimer plaque on the building, or should there be some sort of um, uh, memorial service every year where we um, acknowledge this man's racism or, or whatnot? I, I, what is the solution here? And I'll, I'll just send it off to Jay, and you can talk about whatever you want. Well, since you brought up uh, Penn State and football, you know, there I, I see a huge difference between people of historical significance and athletic significance. Right. Agreed. Um, now, now one could be both. You know, think of someone like, uh, you know, Jim Thorpe or Jesse Owens, someone like that. Sure. You know, but if it's just there because, oh, they had the winningest record in our school's history for sports ball, you know, sports. whatever. <laughs> I'm yeah. not... I'm not a huge sports fan anyway. Um, the question that I would ask is why is the name there? For example, going back to the dorm on campus that Jordan and I went to, you know, he he had that named after him not because he was in the Klan, but because he had donated a large sum of money to the school when it was founded. Right. Um, you know, I don't have a problem with changing the name of a building, if someone donates a large sum of money, you know, it happens all the time. Um, I'm trying to think there was one concert hall up in New York that someone wanted their name on it and ended up paying the old family something like $15 million, you know, (laughs) but, but it's something that happens, you know, a new philanthropist comes along, more money is donated. They change names on buildings all the time. The question is when it's named after someone who's historically significant, for example, like Tillman or Calhoun, or even think of Wilson up at Princeton. You know, there was the movement to remove his name from a building, you know, and he was a president of the United States. Right. <laughs> and so once once we start tearing down or renaming monuments to men of the past who don't hold our ideals, and let's face it, that's what we're talking about. They're not saying, you know, these men necessarily what they're saying these men were bad, but what they're really saying is these men don't hold the same principles I do. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and so on. When once we start allowing that, where does it end? You know, I haven't seen anyone petitioning to tear down the monuments in Washington D.C., even though you know men like Washington himself owned slaves. I don't see anyone petitioning to tear down the Lincoln Memorial or remove him from the money, even though. He himself was a opportunist when it came to slavery. You know, if you go back and read his um, his speeches when he was running for office, he made it clear that his goal was not to end slavery but to preserve the un- preserve the union, and he would do that in any way that he could. So even then, he's not entirely stainless. Um, And so, let's see, in terms of deciding what stays and goes, you know, we really do have to look at, A, why did they receive the recognition in the first place? And B, is that recognition something still relevant today? Yeah. 
Um, uh, well, we, go ahead. Uh, you, I'll let you continue in one second. I guess one complicating question I want to ask, though. So, I mean, what if someone who's just like David Duke, for example, who's just an odious person, right? Uh, and <laughs> um, But what if, I don't know how much money he has, but if, if he offered to have a building named after him um, as a way to kind of whitewash his own history, his own personal history, I mean, shouldn't there be a way for us to – monitor that you know what i'm saying well um, if, if he's offering money the the school or the organization to which he's offering the money can always say no this is true i suppose you there's know? a moral obligation on their part not to allow that to happen um and i guess what we're talking about is more of a kind of a revisionist not revision i don't want to say that because that's that's got a negative comment uh, a reflective um uh, historical impulse here, uh, like looking back and rethinking people's uh, um, position later on. So mm-hmm. um, uh, a thought popped into my head. I'll let it drop for now. Go ahead, Jay. Well, we do have to deal with the fact that undeniably horrible events have happened in the past. You know, no one wants to necessarily erect a monument to a Nazi. Right. You know? And at the risk of violating Godwin's law, you know, I'm going to talk about them for a few minutes. <laughs> yeah. Well, we have in the institution of NASA, I will say that, because that yeah. was basically <laughs> Werner von Braun's uh, thing. Uh-huh. Um, so, yeah. But go ahead. That's just my own little hobby horse. And, and so while, while we but, – but what I mean is you're, you are estab- – you don't have at least – not in the United States, you don't have people going around trying to raise money. At least I hope you wouldn't no. raising money to a to a Nazi leader because he was a Nazi. Right. I I I'm distracting the conversation. Go that, go right. That's ahead. fine. <laughs> Godwin's law. You but but at but at the same time, especially in Germany, you have the idea that what do we do with the buildings that the Nazis built? Um, I know that Hitler's house has long been a bone of contention in the German government. In fact, I think the German government just finally was able to purchase that house after the previous owner had passed. And, you know, there was some legal tax issues, whatever. Anyway, so they took the house in exchange for forgiveness on debt, something like that. Anyway, so they want to remove it so that it doesn't become a pilgrimage site. Ah. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to these structures that are, reminders of these less than savor events. Personally, I always come back to Rod Serling's closing narration of the episode Death's Head Revisited. Okay. And will I I know in the show notes I put a link to that on on YouTube. You know, why do we allow these buildings to still stand that are utterly redeemable? And at the end of that episode he talks about the the concentration camps. Mm. And he says that Dachau is left standing because it must be. All the Dachaus, all the Belsens, all the Buchenwalds, all the Auschwitzes, all of it. They must remain standing because they are a monument to a moment in time when some men decided to turn the earth into a graveyard. Into it, they shoveled all of their reason, their logic, their knowledge, but worst of all, their consciences. And the moment we forget this, the moment we cease to be haunted by its remembrance, then we become the grave diggers. Something to think about, something to dwell on and remember, not only in the twilight zone, but wherever men walk God's earth. Oh, gosh, I have chills. I, we've got to do a show. We've got to do an episode on Twilight Zone, actually, yes. at some point. <laughs> and, and again, I, I have he – has, he, he has a way of delivery. Like, it, it is outstanding. It is probably one of – it's up there yeah. anyway. Yeah. 
so so there is there is a point that he has there that even though something might be utterly redeemable doesn't mean that we should tear it down right you know everything is an example some things are of what we should do and some of what we should not do mm. mm-hmm. i guess the one distinct so i totally agree i think that it's important to leave these painful memories up to keep us honest in a lot of ways to make us um uh, understand that I mean honestly I mean America was built I mean, I'm utterly convinced on slavery and genocide I mean this is I mean a historical fact that America that we have inherited was built on the backs of other people and I think it's important that we understand that I'm not saying anything that we should be ashamed of ourselves or anything like that um, but there is a sense that we should be aware of the privileged position in which we were born and, and I think that um um, places like Auschwitz um, that that makes us aware of the pain of our of our being, and I think that's important. Now, the one distinction I'm going to make, though, is Auschwitz. There's nobody there trying to um, redeem that place, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and, 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 and in fact, I don't think that they upkeep it either. I think that they they have left it to like you can visit it, but it's left purposefully to decay. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's it's ru- it's ruins that are ruining, right? And, right. And and I think that that's a great metaphor for what its function is. Um, and but unlike the Tillman Hall, though, right, there is a heroic uh, narrative that's being put forth with Tillman Hall, and and so. Should we do more, I suppose, in the case of that specific building on that specific campus, um, to acknowledge? the negativity should we use that as an occasion to remind ourselves of our um racist racism that's pervasive even to this day this is the a question i'm raising not necessarily that you have to answer um well uh, oh sorry go ahead i was well, going to transition to you anyway <laughs> yeah well i'm glad i'm glad you mentioned that and brought that question up again because i had forgotten about it and i had thought of something earlier um as part of kind of a I guess a compromise package. I think the name Tillman Hall has stayed on the building. Um, there's actually also another building that I would actually object to, possibly even more strenuously, strenuously called Strode Tower, uh, which is named for someone not as famous as Ben Tillman, but who was one of the architects of American eugenics laws. Mm, wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, which you know was responsible for you know in, in I think the state of Virginia, like the, the forced sterilization of like twenty thousand people. Um, in California, the number was even higher or something crazy like that. So, I mean, that that's one that's, again, flying under the radar where something more high profile is getting in the news, right? Uh, but I think as part of kind of a compromise package, the name has stayed on the building, but there have been new um, historical markers erected around campus, uh, not just to kind of lay out some of the problems with a guy like Ben Tillman, uh, but also to point out that, you know, again, this campus is a former plantation, Mm-hmm. You know, that's John C. Calhoun's house up there. But what you see now and, you know, where there were where there are now academic buildings, um, there used to be things like slave cabins and barns. Right. Um, the basement that I worked in as a grad student, uh, the foundation stones were demolished slave cabins. Um, that was something we knew working in that building. But a public acknowledgement of that does something to at least again, serve as a reminder, right? Since we're talking about, you know, memory specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we, we can talk about the quality of that commemoration, you know, because 
lots of people will stop and look at a statue. A lot of people will drive by a historical marker, right? Um, uh, I, I liked Jay's example of Lincoln's kind of complicated attitude. Uh, according to Lincoln himself, he was always against slavery, but of course the political stances that he took were, you know, sometimes modified by uh, mm-hmm. expediency, so to speak, and of course the the goals of the Civil War. I mean, pe- people argue about what the Civil War was over. Uh, and the point of the Civil War shifted several times during the war itself. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, you know, and, and I, I'm actually putting together a primary source project for my students on this right now. I mean, George McClellan, one of the most famous of Lincoln's generals, you know, I've got a letter from him at the beginning of the war where he's saying, you know, if this becomes in any way about slavery, I'm not going to fight. You know, I want to preserve the Union. So e- even, you know, no no side in, in the, even that struggle was wholly white or wholly black or, you know, wholly committed to what we would think of in our terms as anything like justice. Um, and I would, just to interrupt you for a second, oh, I, no, would, I would argue that that idea of whitewashing, I mean, uh, of making hero- overly heroic characters out of human beings that founded this country is mm-hmm. every bit as much or if not more um, dangerous than forgetting the bad, right? I, I yeah. think that this idea of I mean, I think that the complication of Jefferson's character that has taken place over the last 20, 30 years um, in the public sphere, at least, has been really helpful in appreciating Jefferson more. And so, no, I think I just want to give a shout out to that. Go ahead. Oh, I would. And I would agree. And one of the things that I try really try to bring to teaching history and, you know, something that I've gradually come to over the years of my study of history is um, treating all the actors in the historical story as human beings yeah. right um with a complicated very very complicated mix of good and bad uh you know and I, I see this as kind of at least part of this is for me theologically grounded right we're we're none of us perfect um and you know we all have elements that are in need of redemption whether or not we find that redemption um which is the case with all of the people that we're talking about right. uh, and of course the institutions that they get involved in uh, just organically out of y'all's discussion, Werner von Braun, right? Um, do y'all know anything about what he was up to during World War II? Well, I knew he made the V-2 rockets, and, and, and he yeah. basically was responsible mm-hmm. for the desolation of, <laughs> of Nazi enemies. <laughs> yeah, well, the V-2 rockets were constructed at a constant, a, I think a subcamp of, oh, shoot, I'm going to misspeak, but I think a subcamp of Buten, Buchenwald. Ah, uh, that's uh, right. I'd forgotten that. You're called, right. Yeah, called Dora, which was in underground tunnels, like mines. Okay, so get this Mines of Moria image in your mind. Yeah. And, you know, with Jewish prisoners and especially political prisoners who are working underground, often in very, very dim light, uh, working, being worked to death to produce what are, you know, and nowadays we would call a weapon of mass destruction. Right. right? Uh, Von Braun was able to kind of fob off that he didn't know how the rockets were being constructed, but. Yeah, more more research has revealed that he absolutely knew what was going on. Well, I, I'm immediately remembered what? a Bob Dylan song with God on our side. Um, there's a verse in there that talks of this is obviously a song from the 60s in the nearer memory of World War II, talking about how the Germans have been, how we basically sanctified what the Germans did, and now God's on their side too, right? And so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, go yeah, ahead. Yeah, uh, Tom Lehrer, the comedian, has a great song called Werner von Braun. Um, <laughs> it's like, you know... Once the rockets go up, who cares where they come down? That's not my department, says Werner von Braun. <laughs> uh, 
just kind of critiquing, you know, so that that's that's an issue with Von Braun himself, you know, and and his contribution to American rocketry, you know, as a kid I wanted to be an astronaut and I went to space camp and I was, you know, pretty obsessed with them. Um apparently he had some kind of religious experience post war, uh which, you know, you can you can take or leave. But uh, you know, only later did I really begin to learn what he was up to under the Nazis and what he was producing for them and how it was being produced and the fact that he knew about it. Right. And um all of this needs to be known. Yeah. I think. So mm-hmm. I'm I'm fine with there being things named after him, but I think his story needs to be told not just because it will complicate our image of him, uh, not just because it will kind of commemorate the lives lost and the projects he did for the Nazis. But also because it ought to lead us to question the complicity of our government in bringing him and a lot of other people like him over and kind of turning a blind eye. Operation right. Paperclip is the name yep, of it. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Uh, I was going to bring up Operation Paperclip. Uh, lots right. of, yeah, lots of Nazi scientists who were up to uh, not just exploiting slave labor like von Braun did, but also really ugly human experiments on concentration camp prisoners uh, kind of got a pass after the war because um, in the immediately following – again, it, we keep coming back to expediency here. Yeah. I, think, I think that's um, – a warning uh, in the immediate expediency of the post-war world in which suddenly our allies, the Soviets were now threat number one. Right. Uh, what the Nazis had been up to was suddenly viewed as so necessary that, you know, what's a couple of people tortured to death. We need these guys knowledge. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, which is a, it, to me, kind of the nail in the coffin of pragmatic. Uh, <laughs> It's a major ethical a pragmatic worldview. Yeah, so um, I had not had planned on going off on von Braun, but I think you know <laughs> if we can question him, if we can question, you know, what the NASA program is built on, um, and I say this as a longtime lover of space exploration, absolutely. Uh, but also, we need to, you know, as, as someone who is at least, you know, uh, thankful for America and the government that we have, uh, it has still done a lot of really bad stuff. Right. You know, and oh, yeah. we need to remember that. Uh, you know, the the four years that the Confederate flag flew were, you know, as of nothing compared to the fourscore years under which slavery flourished under the American flag, right? Right. Um, so, you know, again, the the one of the impulses I see in some of this kind of purging of monuments, not not that I necessarily would, you know, I, I would not cry myself to sleep if any of these things were taken down you know that's 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 not that important to me and again i'm i'm you know kind of critiquing without really having a dog in the fight um uh i, I just lost my train of thought i apologize i've done that a couple of times this morning that's okay um, it's fine it started early the, uh, uh yeah seriously um you can cut this out. Well, you while you're thinking, um, yeah. I, I'm reminded, I listen to um, Freestyle Christianity um, when I can, and I mean, when I can understand it, too. So it's a high, <laughs> high theory there that it gets above my head sometimes. But um, there was an episode with a, a theologian who, I believe her name was Marika Rose, and her kind of theology was built on not escaping um kind of painful and negative aspects of Christian thought and history, but 
sort of owning those as mm-hmm. and, and yeah. making them part of your own um, uh, theological. I mean, just you you have to own that that sort of painful um, stuff uh, in order to be a Christian in, in, in this theology that she's con- she's working on. And I, I was utterly kind of convinced by by her argument. It was very influential, yeah. and it's reminded me of what you're talking about here. Yeah, and I'm and I'm glad you brought that up because that kind of put my uh, brain back on track. Uh, it's kind of some of the impulses of of um this sort of purgative movement and the one that most bothers me is the way that it kind of decomplicates history mm-hmm. yeah. um I, I i can you know i i i don't like just generally speaking the kind of destructive impulse i don't like seeing things torn down regardless of whether i like them or not right uh, it's just kind of a weird temperamental thing i, I guess uh pers- rooted in personality so you know, I, I just I generally dislike revolutionaries of whatever stripe and protesters of whatever stripe. It's just kind of who I am. Right. But um, a, a danger I see specific to this is that um, by denouncing something, utterly condemning it, and erasing it, it both uh, fails to admit of the nuance of human life in a flawed world, and it also, if you effectively, you know, and again, probably. Not totally effectively, but if if you can effectively erase things from sort of the public eye, it's going to potentially lull future people into into excuse me ignoring some of these complications. Right? Um, think think of the experience of uh, the Native Americans under Andrew Jackson. Yeah. Um, Andrew Jackson, love him or hate him, you know, because he is on the twenty dollar bill, which isn't irony in and of, in and of itself. Uh, <laughs> other reasons. To, yeah, yeah, <laughs> we get to have those conversations about his role and things like that because he's still around um and i'm totally fine with getting him off of the 20 dollars bill um I, I would not want to see the dominatio memoriae exercised against him because i think he stands as a warning of the dangers of his political program and of the dangers of that the mindset that he he and some of his followers embraced of you know manifest destiny mm-hmm. and you know white supremacy and things like that yeah I don't know. Does any does any of that make uh, any kind of sense? It makes ton, yeah. tons of sense to me. Yeah. Um, Jay, um, do you want to follow up with anything, Jay? Way to put me on the spot. Well, um, <laughs> or I could just move on. <laughs> well, I, I had one other thing I had, oh, I had meant go, to say. Go right uh, ahead. Oh no, it's okay. I, I just to kind of save Jay here real quick. Thank um, you. Again, stop me if I'm going to blather. But I, I really like our our discussion of you know. Um, Jackson and Werner von Braun and things like that. Yeah, uh, I had I had had in the notes John C. Calhoun, right? Oh yeah, that's right. Um, who you know, and that, that kind of brought me back to you know why is why, why do we put a person's name on something? Uh, what what part of that person's life story are we singling out? Right. Um, you know, the denunciations now tend to focus in particularly on things like racism, um, which again, you know, almost everybody would count past about 1950 right or back past 1950 or so uh so calhoun is you know certainly counts as would most other people uh one one thing i love about calhoun though is that he was constantly a you know sticking in andrew jackson's craw so (laughs) um for people who have to pick one of those that 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 could be a uh if if you dislike both of them it could be kind of a mets yankees world series right um uh um a, a, a writer that I really respect, Alan Jacobs, uh, who's yeah. written a really great biography of C.S. Lewis. I follow him on Twitter. I read pretty much everything he posts. Uh, I, I Actually, I was kind of disappointed in a post that he brought up on Calhoun, right? In Calhoun College, one of the um, – the, uh, one of the uh, 
dormitories, I think, right, at Yale. Is that correct? I think it was Yale. This is what I was thinking about when I mentioned Yale. Right. Well, um, Jacobs could only see Calhoun as a apologist for slavery, which I think Calhoun's Calhoun's, uh, memory is tainted, you know, and rightly so because of his advocacy of slavery. Um, Not that that is okay, but um, it does need to be seen in context, right? And I realize context gets used to try to forgive a lot of blemishes. I'm not trying to do that here. Uh, But why, you know, if we're looking at John C. Calhoun at Yale, the reason there's something named after him is that he was a former student, right? So he's an alumnus. Uh, He went on to a very prestigious career. He's one of the few real political philosophers 19th century America produced. Uh, His stuff is not, you know, commonly studied now, but he wrote several books on political philosophy, like the Disquisition on Government. Uh, He tried to sort of, uh, if you see him in kind of a continuum of this sort of federalist, anti-federalist tension, uh, as late as, you know, the 1840s, he's still trying to kind of work that divide to try to kind of save the United States from, you know, on one side, a kind of... uh, top-down, you know, centralized federal control and also, you know, the dangers of the mob, right, the mob mentality and majority rule on the other. He's trying to bridge that gap. Uh, He was Secretary of War, Secretary of Defense. He was a senator from South Carolina. He was the vice president of the United States. Um, When, you know, when Yale named a building after him, they were probably not doing it because of the comments he had on slavery in the wake of the Nat Turner Revolt, right? Right. Um, That you know, it, it, so a, a part of these issues is, you know, context, but also proportion. Like, what, what, how much of a person's life is given over to the thing that is now controversial? It's, you know, with a guy like Calhoun, it is very, very hard to say. With someone like von Braun, it gets a little bit clearer. With somebody like, you know, I don't know, Stalin or Hitler, it's very clear. Sure. But you know, it's it's the gray areas that are so bedeviling. Yeah, absolutely, and that's one thing that we just. As for whatever reason in contemporary culture, and I guess this is a, a good transition into the next question. We have to wrap up pretty soon. Jordan has things to do; he's on vacation. So, um, but oh, uh, it's, it's all good. <laughs> <laughs> but I, uh, for whatever reason, as a culture, we're just unable to deal with ambiguity and, and to deal mm-hmm. with um, moral complexity, and, and I think that that's to our detriment. And mm-hmm. and so I'm not trying to scold people who want to change names of buildings or whatnot. Now I do find right. that kind of at least the abstract um, caricature of the Oberlin student to be obnoxious, but um, <laughs> that's the working class guy in me. Okay. So, um, but I, uh, but I, I'm not trying to scold them for, for that action. I think that that's necessary in order to, to pull the meaning out of these buildings and out of mm. these, these, these memorials. And so I, I think it's actually an important part of the process. I'm not saying that we mm-hmm. should, do anything except think about it. I suppose is what right. my my position and, would be. Uh, but go ahead. I, I go ahead. Oh, I was just I was just going to say, you know, to, to their credit, you know, even where I would disagree with, you know, the kind of you know shrill caricature of the Ivy Leaguer, you know, Ivy League student protesting. Uh, they are well intentioned. Yeah, and that that's one of the things that makes uh-huh. it so complicated is that everybody on every side is well intentioned. Sure. Um, which you know. <laughs> Again, there's not really a guy in a black hat twirling a mustache here. <laughs> like Walter says in the Big Lebowski, say what you want about the tenets of National Socialism. At least it's an ethos. <laughs> um, so this guy peed on it. <laughs> 
So what under I just did an interview with the guy who did a book on the Cohen brothers actually for Christian Humanist oh, Profiles. Fantastic. Oh nice. It, it should be coming out really soon actually. Um there's some technical issues that I'm not proud of, but it was a, a really interesting conversation. I look for that. Um what underlying forces are giving rise to this current phenomenon then? I've just sort of hinted at this inability to <laughs> uh deal with these things. Is it a problem that people are having these complaints or is it healthy? Um and Jay, do you want to start? Sure. Well, I think that some of the current cultural phenomena is just the traditional, you know, the new generation in some way rebelling against the old generation. Yeah. And I'm getting a lot of feedback right now. Um, just work through it. It's okay. Okay. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure on that. Anyway, there, um, you know, it's this idea that whatever is old – you know, we need to change. I think why it's so much more prevalent is given our connected society. In previous generations, the movements weren't as connected as mm -hmm. they were. It wasn't in the spotlight so much. You know, you even 10 years ago, most of the controversies over buildings or memorials would not have been in the national news at all. It might have been a regional thing. Sure. Anyway, um, I think it can be healthy if both sides are willing to have a debate and actually discuss their grievances with each other. But instead we see the radicals on both sides with neither side willing to give either you're totally, totally right and totally or totally wrong. And it goes back to that idea that no one's willing to be ambiguous about it or be willing to admit that there are more than one legitimate opinion about a given issue. Sure. So what we get instead of dialogue, we get shouting matches, screaming matches. We get statements like, well, I don't like it, and whatever I don't like must be, you know, insert your preferred derogatory adjective here. <laughs> you know, racist, bigoted, immoral, whatever. I've seen it all. And if it's in any way offensive, therefore it should be removed. And essentially, there, you know, I think the current terminology is creating a safe space. Yeah. Which we could go on about that. I have very strong opinions on <laughs> on that. But um, again, going back to David Reef, we need to recognize that our collective memory is not based on contingency or factuality, but generally on emotion in the guise of historical fact. Mm. Therefore, our forms of remembrance are neither factual nor proportional nor stable. And that that ends his quote, and then I made in then my words now. <laughs> However, well, it, it's hard to, you know, anyway. However, <laughs> since humans do not have a collective hive mind, regardless of evidence to the contrary on social media, <laughs> it's only individuals that remember. And when you get multiple individuals having the same memory fighting against other individuals that share a memory, that's where you get the get the conflict. Wow, that is okay. That's a dense statement. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna have to. I, I, yeah, I, it got the, it got very philosophical and very historical at that point. Since I'm you, sorry about that. No, no, no. I think it's wonderful. Since do you? I'm uh, sorry. Humans don't have the collective hive mind. It's only individuals that remember. Um, that is so interesting. I guess that, I mean, one piece of evidence for that claim then that I think you could point to is the competing 
the multi-layered competition between defining what the Confederate flag means to go back mm-hmm. to the beginning. Um, there isn't sort of a, a, a single um, approach. There isn't a single meaning that that symbol carries. Um, and so, wow, I, I, that's one thing I'm just going to have to think about for a long time. <laughs> and, and, and uh, you know, listeners, this is something that you could actually like, uh, uh, give us some feedback on too. That's a really interesting phrase. Um, good stuff there, Jay. Um, uh, Jordan. Uh, I, I think Jay pretty well hit the nail on the head with uh, with with regard to one of the factors that I see at role, and that's uh, the role of social media. Yeah, especially in especially in the recent ones. Uh, like I like I mentioned, coming from Georgia as a kid, it seemed like you know, kind of part of every you know every news cycle year by year, there would be some kind of controversy about the flag. Um, you know, kind of like uh, at the beginning of Groundhog Day when. <laughs> uh, the reporter talks about doing the swallows returning to Capistrano every year. Uh, there was an annual news story, you know, something about the flag. Somebody's mad at it. Somebody wants to take it down, et cetera. And it just kind of goes away. Um, that you can't have anymore. Uh, now all problems are national problems and they all have to be resolved immediately. Mm. Um, which, you know, w- without taking sides on any particular issue, I don't think that that, can possibly do justice to any any political issue, especially when it involves public symbolism. Um, I, I really like what you were talking about with the uh, Wahoo is the Cleveland Indians mascot, right? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, I really like what you were saying about that and when we were talking about that Bib Graves dormitory, uh, the kind of quiet change. Um, I, I, I wish that more changes like that could happen that way mm-hmm. as opposed to everybody on the internet weighing in, you know, um, because un- under that, you know, who can stand that kind of scrutiny, right? The kind of magnifying glass of the internet hovering over our own little local anthill. Right. <laughs> um, it, you know, the, uh, I, and, you know, kind of my reference to John C. Calhoun's political philosophy, right? And the anti-federalists, I kind of wish that more problems could be resolved locally among people mm-hmm. who at least, even if they don't know each other, they kind of know the area, right? So where um, what might have been an issue on campus 20 years ago is now a national controversy with people from all over weighing in. Um, I, I really wish people could work through their differences more directly. Um, one of the other side effects of the role of social media, too, is because, you know, you get everybody in on it. Um, it ultimately becomes kind of an argument about pop culture, right? Because what is recognizable enough to people on social media right. to be worth targeting. Right. Um, that's where, you know, that, that's why I kind of brought up the Confederate flag earlier with, you know, the fact that it's not the national flag, it's a flag used in battle, et cetera. And, you know, that's, you know, that's, that could potentially be sophistry. And I've seen lots of ridiculous arguments made on the basis of that. But I think it's worth noting because one of those flags is recognizable and the other is not. Yeah. And it's the recognizable one that becomes the target of ire. Um, I, you saw this again. The, the kind of most recent controversy kicked off after that horrible massacre in Charleston, right? Sure. With the, the murderers' Facebook photos, and again, you see this in social media, right? Um, in the absence of any news, with the 24-hour news cycle, they've got to dig up something, so they find the guy's Facebook page, and somewhere in his profile pictures, he had a picture of himself posing in front of <laughs> in front of a really trashy car, right? With a battle flag, Confederate battle flag in one hand and another flag in the other. And only one of those flags generated controversy. Right. Uh, the other flag was the flag of apartheid Rhodesia. Mm. Um, but Americans are not going to get that. And so 
one of those, you know, and, and there's an argument about relevance as well, right? Uh, but the Rhodesian apartheid flag is a explicitly racist flag without the kind of layers of meaning that the battle flag has. Uh, but it's the one that, is, you know, the Rhodesian flag is the one that does not get the controversy of it right. uh, over it. Um, so on Jay's note of, you know, I, I thought that was really well put, the neither factual nor proportional nor stable. Um, you know, fact has come up in our discussion. Proportionality, I think we've mentioned. Um, stability, uh, you know, social media, you know, give it five minutes and there will be something else to be mad about, you know. So that that to me, I feel, you know, there are actual conversations to be had about this stuff. But the ones that we've been having are not worthwhile. I don't think that they're really going to help solve anything. It's sort of a therapeutic catharsis, right, where everybody gets to kind of signal their virtues by condemning something and then moving on to the next thing, Yes, which I don't think is healthy. No, and and I think this is a, 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 there's some reason, and this is a particular flaw in our American left right now. I think that um, that group, we, we are drawn far too heavily to symbolic gestures. Uh, and and so the Bernie Sanders supporter, I think is fixated on the symbolic gesture of having a democratic socialist in the white house. Right. And not, and not fixated on enacting, you know, democratic socialist policies at the level of, um, local and state government and dog Mm -hmm. catcher and whatnot. You know what I'm saying? Um, and, and, (laughs) and we're just, I mean, the Democratic, the Democratic Convention, which is going on right now, they're so entranced with the symbolism of their inclusivity, right? Um, except when people boo, um, and then we have to shut them <laughs> up, right? And so um, I, I feel like there's, um, particularly on the left, and, and I'm, this is also, I think that m- many of the policies of the right have been utterly symbolic, but, um, but this is a weakness in the left right now, is being drawn to symbolism. And so something like the Confederate flag, or uh, I, I think it carries more weight than it probably should um, because yeah. it, and it's almost a distraction from mm-hmm. um, actual um, issues. And but I want to follow that up. I think you've just earned a, um, a, a picture with a slogan for the for the show. Who can stand the scrutiny of the Internet hovering over our little anthill? <laughs> I, I, I hope I got that right. Uh, look for that yes. coming soon for our uh, – our, we're going to end up with a set of playing cards, I think, for the show. And I think I, I think, think I think there's a far side cartoon like that, right, with the giant magnifying <laughs> yes. glass hovering over the <laughs> – Ah, is that where it comes from? All right. Well, it's a great saying. So look for that. Look for that in a, in a Facebook meme near you. So um, I want to – I know Jordan has to run. So I want to just kind of wrap up. At the personal level, we all – need to come to grips with our past and then sort of move on. You talked about therapeutic on some level, uh, and I think that that's a, a good term to use. Memory forms us but shouldn't completely define us. So as a nation then, this is getting out of the realm of the individual and back into the hive mind, um, Jay, uh, what role should the past play? And I let Jordan take this one first. All right. Um, well, I, as, a, as I note in the notes, um as a uh, you know kind of traditionalist, I have a pretty exalted view of the role that the past should play. Um, uh, I, I view it, um, it, it a the way I wrap up my semesters with my U.S. history students um, because we go through a lot of very heavy stuff in U.S. history, right? And um, I, I try not to discuss politics openly in there, but you know it's it's hard when I talk about difficult issues like slavery, like 
you know, the treatment of Native Americans, things like that. It's hard to wonder if, you know, I'm not in the minds of some of them, you know, that liberal anti-American professor. Yeah. You know, neither of which is actually true. Sure. Um, to me, history has kind of a chastening role. Um, it, you know, you can go to it for role models. I'm not discounting that at all. I, I really do, you know, um, in one of our Rome episodes, Coyle and I talk about Cicero, right? And he talked about history as being, you know, something to enrich our current lives by looking back to better days and finding role models. Um, I think that's an acceptable model of history. It's not the one that we are accustomed to now, right? Where we're primarily looking to the past to frankly pat ourselves on the back about how much better we are yeah um which i do not think is a good tendency by any means uh there's a certain enslavement to contemporary norms there uh that you know eventually is going to consume itself right like the french revolution you know you're a friend of the republic one day and an enemy of the people the next um did any of y'all see that babylon b article um They've been on a roll recently. Yes, they have. Uh, uh, They had a great one, though, and it's coming from a very clear ideological point of view, but just to see where I'm going with this. Uh, The headline was something like, you know, progressive suddenly realizes she has opinions now that will make her a bigot in 10 years. (laughs) Yes, I (laughs) I didn't see that. I remember that one. I thought that was pretty poignant, right? And (laughs) and not just for progressives, right? We we need – to reflect upon ourselves and most of the current condemnation of monuments is not reflective. It's strictly about, you know, you know, you know, wipe out the kulaks, purge the memory of the hated czars, you yeah. know, and then, you know, we, we can go on into our sunlit uplands of whatever. Uh, so uh, with, with that in mind, I, I think history needs to be there to complicate our picture of ourselves um, as well as to give us role models. I think that's those two things are in tension, but I think that tension is healthy. Um, oh, and going back to the way I kind of summarize it for my students, um, with your family members, right? You know them for the good and the bad. Uh, and if you, you know, genuinely love your family, you need to take both with it, right? You need to work against the bad and you need to encourage the good. Uh, by the same token, if we want to look at American history the same way as, you know, kind of, you know, not, not to get lovey-dovey, but sort of a family we're born, born into, we need to acknowledge the problems in our family and work against them as well as, you know, try to take what encouragement we can from it. Um, and that's complicated, right? Every one of our family members has traits we dislike and traits we do like. Um, yeah, uh, I, I had planned to say something about Stone Mountain. Um, oh, I, it right. might, that so, might yeah, Oh, Victoria, I think, wanted us to, didn't she? Yeah, do you want me to kind of give like a two-minute precy of what I had in mind? Sure, yeah. Yeah, um, Stone Mountain, I think, is a pretty good example, and I'm, I'm glad Victoria mentioned it because um, I, I see it as kind of an opportunity to complicate this picture. Uh, there's been talk recently of, you know, sand blast the statues off the mountain. Mm-hmm. Um, and for anybody who doesn't know what Stone Mountain is, uh, Stone Mountain is this huge, solid granite um, mountain that just kind of juts out of the earth north of Atlanta. And uh, it's kind of become popular as like a camping destination in the last several decades. Um, when I was a kid, I went there once, and they used to do this gloriously cheesy laser show with Lee Greenwood playing. Um, <laughs> Lee Greenwood. I, I don't, I don't know if they still do that or not, but it was, it was pretty great. I'll bet he's saying, um, "God bless the USA." Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's what it was. Yeah. <laughs> what else? Well, <laughs> um, Stone Mountain was, um, you know, it, it's been a natural, you know, a pretty remarkable natural feature of the landscape forever. But uh, in the early 1900s, when they were constructing Mount Rushmore in the Badlands, which is 
uh, not the Badlands, the Black Hills, sorry, uh, which of course is a controversial topic in and of itself because uh, of the way that land was acquired. Uh, there was sort of an idea to do a sort of parallel monument on Stone Mountain commemorating kind of, you know, Southern leadership and, you know, sort of the memory of the Civil War. Uh, and the idea had been to kind of do a relief of scenes from the war completely encircling the mountain. Uh, all that was ever completed was the three central figures, which are Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy, uh, Robert E. Lee, and Stonewall Jackson. Um, <laughs> yeah, so that, that's all that's actually up there, these three figures. Uh, it's pretty iconic, especially if you're from Georgia and have been to Saint, or excuse me, uh, um, Stone Mountain at all. Um, and I, I get why people might want to have that removed. But I think there's an opportunity there to, again, kind of complicate our picture of it because uh, the personal histories of all of these guys are not necessarily what you might expect. Um, Jefferson Davis, right, uh, you can see you, – you can Google it and find plenty of condemnations of him as a traitor and as a slave owner. Uh, he was a war hero in the Mexican War, um, which was – you know, an unjust war, but you know he at least acquitted himself bravely. Uh, he was a former Secretary of War. He was very heavily involved in Washington politics uh, on behalf of the state of Mississippi. He was personally acquainted with Abraham Lincoln prior to the war, uh, and then you know went over to the South, uh, you know, on behalf of you know states' rights or whatever. Sure. When the civil, you know, when secession, the secession movement got underway, uh, of the three figures on the mountain, he's the one who most closely fits our stereotype of the southern slave owner. Sure, because um, he was very wealthy. He had a very large plantation uh, in the kind of lower reaches of the Mississippi River. Um, he he was one of those that you hear about who ad- advocated, you know, lenient treatment for his slaves, whether or not that actually happened or not. You know, we we can't entirely know, but he at least advocated it. Um, Lee usually gets talked about as kind of, you know, this aristocratic general born with a silver spoon in his mouth. Uh, his dad was a close associate of George Washington, but was a bit of a loser in uh, Trumpian terminology. <laughs> a wastrel with sad. Yes. <laughs> Light horse Harry Lee lost all his money and died. Sad. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, Robert E. Lee's dad had a number of other children. Lee was the last of several children. Um, when he was born, his dad was basically absentee off kind of trying to pursue ventures to sort of restore his fortune. Uh, he was into gambling. <clears throat> he had a variety of financial problems. He was a bit of a wastrel. And so even though Lee is born in a plantation house, he's not really he's, – he's born to a glorious name, and that's about it. Uh, the house was in very bad repair. Uh, as such, his experience with slavery is very different from that of Davis because um, the only slaves he personally interacted with were very often kind of like body servants or valets um, whom he had a reputation for treating well. Again, not that slavery is okay. It's not. I think the tradition of Christian teaching is pretty clear on that. Uh, but you know, in the situation that Lee found himself in, he tried to acquit himself honorably. Uh even you know the the one extensive period in which he actually had a control of a large body of slaves, they were not even his. Uh, his father-in-law, who was very wealthy, died, and left. Uh, he manumitted all of his slaves in his will, with one proviso, which was that they would stay on to work for five years to pay off his debts because he was not really interested in running his farm and had racked up a ton of debt. Um, so even you know, so for the space of about five years into the beginning of the Civil War, Lee actually had legally control of a body of slaves that were not his and were technically free. And he 
hated every minute of it. He wrote in a letter that it was a um, a, a very difficult legacy that he had inherited from his father-in-law. Uh, Jackson, on the other hand, was very atypical. He was from the sticks, right, in what is now West Virginia. Um, he was a devout Presbyterian and famously, uh, as, as a lot of Confederate apologists will point out, uh, ran a Sunday school for African-Americans in his hometown. Uh, and of course, a Sunday school at that time was a lot more than just, you know, flannel graph. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jack, Jackson is atypical in that he did not, he, he came from what we would think of as the poor white class. Um, he, he's actually, you know, if, if you wanted to take issue with something other than slavery on the mountain, Jackson was actually uh, like a number of other low, uh, you know, lower class people in the war, a advocate of what we think of as total war, right? He was famous for, you know, give them the bayonet or kill them all, right? Uh, which is something he had in common with Grant and Sherman, who were also from lower class backgrounds. Um, the three of these men taken together can give you a very, very striking and startlingly different portrait of what these, what, you know, what even people who are justly condemned for protecting slavery are like. Um, that is an opportunity that will be lost if we just tear it down, right? If we just see the names Davis Lee and Jackson mm-hmm. and kind of collectively wipe that away you know if we let that one taint kind of remove this these very richly complicating factors from the story um that is by no means the whole argument there and again i I don't really have a dog in the fight when it comes to stone mountain but when i look at the stories of those three men in particular you know what you're commemorating them for is going to be very very different depending on who's looking at it but they're personal stories, their lived experiences of slavery complicate the image that we have of it. And I think that's valuable, at least historically. It's a pedagogical opportunity. Um, yeah. And I, I that, it, yeah, <laughs> talking about a teachable moment makes me sound kind of like a fuddy duddy. <laughs> you know, I, I've embraced being a fuddy duddy for pretty much my whole life. But uh, I mean, you know, as long as, um, you know, the, the, there are conversations to be had. Uh, I don't think the conversations we're actually having are, the ones we need to have uh, because they are not really encouraging historical understanding. I think if, if, as long as we have these things available to us, if we can steer the conversation toward actually understanding the complexity of the issues and the, you know, bringing that back to reflect upon ourselves and what complicated fallen institutions we're parts of, I think it will have some kind of value. Yeah. Um, I don't know how much of that made any sense, but there you go. (laughs) They made plenty. Don't apologize for yourself. You're doing great. Uh, Jay? Well, you know, when when we have bad history, we end up not with just bad history. We end up with bad morality along the, you know, the lines of um, Michael Basales or uh, Mm – Eric Metaxas and David Barton, which, spe- which speaking of Barton, I did promise I had something good to say about him. So here oh, it goes. Here it is. Oh, boy. Um, yeah, it, but it does have a caveat. Anyway, Barton, <laughs> Barton actually has a video in which he discusses the religious symbols in Washington, D.C. And if you can ignore the whole conspiracy theory that, you know, all of these symbols have been suppressed, his actual discussion of the symbols is actually de- fairly decent. So... That's my one good thing to say about David Barton. A fairly um, decent. Okay, good. <laughs> any, anyway, but again, you have to ignore the whole, these symbols have been silenced. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> National <laughs> Treasure 3. Yeah. Um, in contrast, we, we could also end up with kitsch as well. Yeah. You know, you end up with these living history museums that don't 
either don't address the hard issues or aren't willing to address the hard issues. And I think that's the uh, – Danny was talking about the danger of the pointless symbolic gesture on the left. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I think turning history into kitsch is the danger for the right. Yeah. Right. And that's actually one thing I appreciate. My wife is an historic interpreter at one of our local historic sites, and they, and they actually are willing to deal with the hard issues. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, to me, that, that speaks highly of their organization. Um, then, you know, you end up with people like, uh, oh, Bismarck, who said the goal is not to write history, the goal is to make history, mm. or something like that. But, um, and again, I'll stick in a, a Terry Pratchett quote in here, as is my as is my want, history has a habit of changing the people who think they're changing it. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. It's been around a long time. (laughs) Anyway, so um, I don't think that either of those are necessarily the goal. The best history, in my opinion, would be history that makes us, or history that demands that we examine ourselves. Exactly. That makes us ask hard questions about not just our society, but ourselves in particular, and as a result makes us more outlooking to things that are larger than ourselves, our community. I'm thinking right now of this week's Democratic Convention again as we record. Um, Michelle Obama, this widely praised speech um, in which she stated that she wakes up every morning in a house built by slaves, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a good example of that kind of acknowledgement that I think it was implied right here. Um, and, right. And then, and then you have all the people like it wasn't built by slaves I, and slaves. go but, to the national archives people. I, I, well, and even worse than that, I mean, Bill O'Reilly responds with this almost like Disney song of the South version of what it was like to be a slave. <laughs> um, and he says, well, they were well fed and taken care of. They were happy slaves. Right. And so um, like, to me, that was just like one of the most astonishing things Mm-hmm. Of examples of tone deafness I've ever like witnessed, I think. Um, Which but, again is like not acknowledging. It's like you know maybe, maybe those slaves were well fed, but the fact that you have to, <laughs> the, the fact that you have to like sneak that in there suggests something about the uh, broader context. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That needs to be acknowledged for sure. Yeah, that was to me like yeah, really, really egregious. Um, and so, yeah. but and and a good, I think. Uh, the polls of what we're talking about. I think um, Mrs. Obama's um, claim is is what we should be doing with history. Uh, that doesn't mean tear down the White House, right? Because it was built by slaves. It means this is a part of our living history. And O'Reilly's re- like reactionary response um, to kind of paint America as this you know heroic, uh, in a genetic sense, this heroic um, activity, and 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 to sort of whitewash literally. The um, the role of slavery uh, in in the building of that one building and so yeah I think that that was that those a handy example for what we're talking about here yeah. um, mm-hmm. and one of the great values of good history is irony yeah. yes I mean going back to Herodotus and Thucydides I mean that is a wonderful ex- ex- uh, excuse me example of a historical irony right that yeah. you know the you know the the executive mansion as constructed by slaves is now occupied by a person who could potentially be a descendant of those slaves. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Um, yeah. And that's, that's, I mean, that's a redemption. I mean, that's the work of redemption right right there. And so, um, that wouldn't be possible 
if to if we just sort of sanitize history. Um, now, right. I, I purposely what? use the image of Stalin's broken statue in the uh, imagery for this show um, because here was a person famous for white for you know washing people out of history for wiping people mm-hmm. out of history, and he ends up part of that process, right? <laughs> in that image, at least, yeah. right? Although we obviously still remember Stalin. Not that for anything good, right? And so, um, and so, I, I feel like that's the danger of um, of undertaking this activity is you sort of are kind of constructing your own demise in doing so. And, and I, I think that uh, you guys have done a great job of, uh, of of pointing that out. Any last thoughts before we uh, close it up? Well, I was going to add that I think one of the greatest ironies of history is that history itself isn't forever. At some point, the things that we as Jordan and I think, as historians think are important today, may not be important in another 100, 150, 300 years. Mm. The things that we have or that we remember may no longer be in that cultural memory. And so I'm, I think especially of um, Shelley's Ozymandias. Uh, I'm glad you brought that up. Great. Yeah. With that, you know, here, here's a monument. Yes, it still exists, but no one remembers it. Right. Mm-hmm. And except for the I mean, the, I think that poem is infinitely interesting. Um, there's levels of narration going on there. Um, mm-hmm. I, I met a stranger from a, a traveling stranger from a foreign land. Um, and so you said two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Right. So you have the speaker of the poem telling us something what the traveler said and describing um, the work of an artist who was describing the work of the Pharaoh. Right. And so right. you have all this kind of distance from, from the original person who was creating a monument to himself. Right. And that narrative mm-hmm. is out of his control because of the, the, the passage of time. And, and I, I just think that poem is uh, infinitely interesting. And also interesting that they used as the, the uh, in the series breaking bad, which I still have. Yes. Seen yet. But, um, but they, that's sort of the culminating image of that, of that show. And I think that that's, that's, Wonderful. Um, yeah, um, that's great. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, so uh, as you listen to the end of this, um, note that this was a, uh, a two-part episode. I'm, <laughs> I decided on the fly to cut this into two since we're now at two hours. Uh, and so just to kind of go easy on the listener, I, I decided to do that. If you have any uh, responses, uh, Jay got – to super philosophical uh, with these little phrases. History itself isn't forever, right? And so, uh, uh, <laughs> like Jay uh, opened up a lot of like room for response, particularly, and, and both of these guys uh, contributed uh, a lot of great insight into this really abstract process of memory. Um, Remember the Facebook page. I had promised to uh, name new Facebook listeners, uh, likes uh, Megan Von Bergen, thank you, and Paul Schleifer, thank you, uh, for liking the Facebook page. I encourage you to do the same and participate in this conversation. Talk back at us. Tell us what we missed. Tell us where it's um, frustrating for you um, as a listener. That's one one of my favorite things about this. Um, As well as getting to talk to uh, wonderful guys like Jay and Jordan. Um, I really appreciate you guys taking the time. Um, to really invest into what we're doing here. And uh, I really enjoyed this show, and I really learned a lot from uh, from talking to you guys. Um, well, thanks for having us. No yes. problem. Um, Glad it could finally happen. <laughs> speaking, of, uh, speaking of frustrations as a listener, you know, frustrations as a co-host or guest host, right? I mean, this is such a huge topic, and, I mean, we broached so many things that, you know, I, I feel like we're just going through a huge pantry opening lids without actually looking in the jars. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there, it's 
there's so much more that could be said. Kind of, you know, kind of like that conspiracy episode back sure. at the beginning of the summer. Uh, the summer. <laughs> I mean, for yeah, sure. It, it's it's but it's but it's a fun challenge. Well, feel free either of you guys if you want to write something up. I could I'll post it on the blog for the show on on our website. Um, so yeah, if you want to follow up anything or clarify anything, feel free to do that, and I will be glad to uh, uh, to continue the conversation forward. And that's kind of the goal of this is to just kind of begin a conversation that hopefully carries on has some half life after that. So um, um, on the show notes, uh, you will see links to a lot of the stuff that we talked about today. Um, hopefully, I'll hit most of it, or if not all of it and uh and like i said feel free to to uh talk back to us don't forget about our itunes account uh if, if you could go there and uh give us a nice review there that'll help other people find the uh, the show and if you could uh you know share us around your social media that would be awesome too um um, I don't really have any other announcements for the show. I just want to kind of uh, thank my guests again, uh, Jordan Poss and Jay Eldred. Thanks for appearing, and you'll hear more from these guys in the future. Thanks for listening to Sectarian Review. Download us again next month for another hour of criticism, reviews, and opinion. In the meantime, check out our Facebook page and send us an email at sectarianreview at gmail.com. Sectarian Review is a part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Eternal thanks to Kristen Philippic, the trepid press liaison. Until next time, remember the words of Kafka, don't despair, not even over the fact that you don't despair. Bye. <laughs>